2 Samuel chapter 14. If you're a guest, we've been working our way through this book of the Bible. That's how we, we do it here. And uh, we are in chapter 14 tonight. Um, sometimes when I see a lot of guests in the house, um, and I know what I'm preaching because I don't really pick, I just do what's next in the Bible, the book we're working through. I, I think, man, I, I wish I would have had a nicer message. Um, this, this message, really this whole chapter season in David's life is pretty messy. It's really messy. And we've been preaching about how his sin of adultery and then lying about it and then murdering someone to cover it up. I mean, that's pretty messy. We've been, we've been teaching how this has just made a mess of his life, mess of his family. He started immediately facing the consequences for that in the very next chapter when his son committed sexual sin. And then his other son killed the one who raped his sister. And that's where we pick up our story tonight. Like it's going to keep getting messy. Here's what you got to understand. Sin always makes a mess. Sin always makes a mess. Why should preachers preach on sin against it? Because it always makes a mess destroys lives. A man by the name of Jacob Neusner, he's a well-known but, but a controversial scholar. It's very interesting, the story I read about him in the spring of 1981. He was a professor at Brown University. Did, did it do something weird? That's why I don't wear this silly thing. I'm wearing the sweater. I want to I flex on you just a little bit. We're uh, we're selling these for our academy, Fellowship Baptist Academy sweaters. These are part of our, our winter uniform gear for our students, and I like them so much I want the adults to wear them too. They're on sale for $30. You could look this good for only $30. <laughs> In all seriousness, uh, Brother Justin oversees that, and so he, he will uh, take your size and, and your payment, and it'll be great for you to wear one of these. Anyway, I'm wearing this because of this. Back to Jacob Neusner. He was a professor at Brown University, and he decided to write this mock graduation address for the student newspaper. The student newspaper is called Brown's Daily Herald. And, and this, this, was, this particular article was published on June 12th, 1983, a year before I was born. Students were offended. Faculty were offended by this. But yet it actually made him popular because it made national news. And here's what his underlining principle was in this mock-up address to this university. It had to do with encouraging leniency when rigor is appropriate. And how that actually encourages laziness in the spirit and attitude of the students. Did you catch that? In other words, he's speaking out against the fact that so many teachers are being lenient when leniency hasn't been earned. And that has produced laziness in students. I'm just going to read you a portion of his address. It's a mock address. So he didn't do this, but he he wrote it as if he was going to address the student body. He said, the faculty has no reason to take pride in this graduating class. Because they did not prepare the students for the real world. Failing to be rigorous, the faculty did not tell the truth about the students' shoddy, boring, and inadequate work. 
Furthermore, they put up with late papers and petty arguments. They gave easy bees and did not distinguish the excellent from the ordinary. As a result, the students have grown lazy. They've become quitters and they see themselves as more interesting and gifted than they actually are. We have prepared you for a world that does not exist. Outside, quitters are not heroes. They will be ill-advised if they continue to do that in the outside world. That's going to offend a few snowflakes. I actually agree 100% with Neusner. Encouraging leniency when rigor is more appropriate is not helpful. This is what we're going to see in 2 Samuel 14. David, the king of Israel, the one the Lord trusted to protect his people, to preserve justice for his people, failed to do so when he gave leniency to an unrepentant wrongdoer who happened to be his son. And in doing so, he perverted justice and then he invited further calamity into his house and into his kingdom. I want to tell you the story in about two paragraphs, give you kind of a big picture of you, and then we'll dive into the text. Absalom had just killed his brother Amnon for raping his sister Tamar. We know that. We studied it last week. He killed him because David failed to take care of it. He was a passive father. However, Absalom, his murder was still unlawful. He shouldn't have done it. It was wrong. So he was forced to flee Jerusalem. He ran away to Gesher to his maternal grandmother for three years. Are you following this? During this time, David's heart, his father's heart, started to soften toward Absalom to where where he didn't want to respond in a hostile way any longer. Well, David had this really uh, close military general that worked right under him by the name of Joab, who, by the way, was also a murderer. He noticed that David's heart and disposition toward Absalom was starting to change. He was missing Absalom. And so he manipulated and, and devised a way for David to agree to let Absalom come back into the kingdom without retribution. And that proved to be one of David's biggest mistakes as a king. In offering leniency to an unrepentant murderer, David perverted justice and he invited calamity into the kingdom that would haunt him and his people for the rest of their lives. In a statement, here's what the message is about. Providing leniency to the unrepentant perverts justice and invites further calamity. Providing leniency to the unrepentant perverts justice and invites further calamity. We're going to work our way through the story. We're going to stop along the way to explain a few things. Then we're going to make application to our lives and go home tonight. Verse number one of chapter 14. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, I want you to follow along your Bible, your device. You're going to need to keep your nose in the Bible tonight. Now Joab, the son of Zariah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom. Okay, look up here. Three years, a dad hasn't seen his son. He still loved his son. He started to miss his son. Joab noticed that. And he said, I got to figure out a way to manipulate David to let Absalom back in. Now, we don't know Joab's motives. Maybe later on in the chapter, it gives us indication that Joab was sensing that Absalom was the only one that would really be able to continue David's dynasty. Which means that's the only way he's going to keep a job. And so he wants to, he wants to keep David's family in this thing and, and get, get Absalom back. Verse two and three. Look what he did to make this happen. And Joab sent to Tekoa 
and fetch thence a wise woman. And said unto her, I pray thee, feign or fake thyself to be a mourner and put on now mourning apparel and anoint not thyself with oil, but be as a woman that had a long time mourned for the dead and come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Okay, what's, what's Joab doing? He knows he can't confront David himself and change his mind because David's gonna pick up on what he's trying to do. He needs to confront David indirectly by way of someone that David couldn't recognize. So he picks a woman from Tekoa. That's a little town 10 miles away from Jerusalem. She needs to be a crafty woman, a good actress. The narrator calls her a wise woman. Now there's some irony here in calling this woman a wise woman. She actually is going to pervert wisdom, going to be very manipulative with David. It's really not wisdom. She's just subtle. She's crafty. The reason why it's irony is because David had just done this two chapters ago with Uriah. David had perverted wisdom himself when he brought Uriah back from the battlefield and and tried to get him to sleep with Bathsheba so that everybody would think that Uriah got Bathsheba pregnant and not him. He tried all these clever ways to do that. And now the very way that he tried to manipulate somebody, he's going to get manipulated. What does that teach us? You reap what you sow. Here's how Job's going to do this. He's going to send this woman and he's, he's actually going to use the same technique in some ways that the prophet Nathan used in chapter 12 to confront David. You remember that? He told a fictional story. How many remember that? Raise your hand. Let me know you're with me. He told him a fictional story. So this woman comes to uh, David that, sh- that he didn't recognize and she has a poor look. It's like she's been mourning for, for many, many days. And she tells this story. And she says, I have two sons. I'm a widow. My husband's died. My two sons were on a field and they got in a fight, like good brothers get in a fight every once in a while. The problem is nobody was there to break them up. And it escalated to the point where one brother killed the other. And she said, now the rest of the family, the extended family, they want the the, the murdering brother to be executed. And she explains why that's not a good idea. She explains to David, we, we, we can't let this happen because this extended family of mine, they're greedy. They, they, they want him executed because they know I'm a widow. And that means that, that, that if they execute this guy and the other brother's already dead, there's no heir. There's no descendant. And when I die, they're going to get my land. They're going to get my possessions because it extends to the, the rest of the clan, the rest of the family. And she's pleading with the king. Give my son immunity. Give my son a release. Please, please, would you, would, you, would you restore him and protect him? And look how David responds, verse 8. The king said unto the woman, go to thine house, and I will give charge concerning thee. And the woman of Tekoa said unto the king, my lord, O king, the iniquity be on me and my father's house, and the king and his throne be guiltless. The king said, whosoever saith aught unto thee, bring him to me. He shall not touch thee any more. Then said she, I pray thee, let the king remember the Lord thy God, that thou wouldest not suffer the revengers of blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. Watch what David says. As the Lord liveth, there shall not one hair of thy son fall to the earth. Are you with me? David comes down on the side of the widow, or the widow. He offers immunity to her son. This is exactly where the woman wanted to get the king. He's agreed to be lenient on a murderer that, that isn't part of his family. Now she's going to be able to pressure him to show that same leniency to the murderer who is a part of his family. You see what she's doing? 
Verse 12. Then the woman said, let thine handmaid, I pray thee, speak one word unto my Lord, the king. This is what she really wanted to talk to him about. David said, okay, say on, whatever, go forward. And the woman said, wherefore then hast thou thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king doth speak this thing as one which is faulty. In other words, you're two-faced. In that the king doth not fetch home again his banished. See, the woman raises this accusing question to show that David is hypocritical. He's decreed that the woman's banished son, though he's a murderer, should be restored. But he hasn't moved a single finger to restore his own banished son. Man, this is crafty. It's at this point where David starts to catch on to something. You know what it is? He says, this woman's been put up to this. She didn't come up with this on her own. And the first person that came to his mind was Joab, that little manipulator. Well, well, look what David did. Verse 19, verse 19. And the king said, is not the hand of Joab with thee in all this? And the woman answered and said, as I so live, my Lord, the king, none can turn to the right hand or to the left from aught that my Lord, the king has spoken for thy servant, Joab, he bade me. And he put all these words in the mouth of thine handmaid to fetch about this form of speech hath thy servant Joab done this thing. And my Lord is wise according to the wisdom of an angel of God to know all the things that are in the earth. And the king said unto Joab, behold now, I've done this thing. Go therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. And Joab fell to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. Joab said today, thy servant knoweth that I found grace in thy sight, my Lord, O king, and that the king hath fulfilled the request of his servant. Look up here. Even though David knew he had been manipulated, he still acquiesced to Joab's desire. He showed leniency to an unlawful murderer. Now let me be clear. Showing leniency and showing mercy is not always unwise. We should be in a posture of showing mercy. But it's it's about to whom we show mercy and when we choose to show mercy and show leniency. The question we're left now to discover as readers of the text is this. Is Absalom a good candidate for the king's leniency? Did he do the right thing? Or is Absalom a better candidate for the king's justice? What does that depend on? It depends on Absalom's character. It depends on Absalom's posture. His disposition. Is Absalom repentant? Did David do the right thing? Well, the rest of the text is going to reveal to us that I think David did the wrong thing. Verse 24. And the king said, let him turn to his own house. Absalom, by the way, has been brought back from his grandma's house. He's in Jerusalem. Let him turn to his own house and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. Go down to verse 28. How long did this happen? So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. So Absalom got home, but David wouldn't see him. Now, we're not sure why, but I would contend it's not an entirely bad thing because it's in this space of two years that we're going to see Absalom's true character. We're going to see whether or not he's a good candidate for justice or leniency. And at first, the narrator makes it seem like, wow, David did make a right choice. Absalom deserves mercy. Look at verse 25. But in all Israel... There was none to be so much praise as Absalom for his beauty. From the sole of his foot, even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. 
And when he pulled his hair, that means he cut his hair. For it was at every year's end that he pulled it because the hair was heavy on him. Therefore, he pulled it. He weighed the hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. Hair to men was their glory. Verse 27, and unto Absalom there were born three sons and one daughter. Their kids were also their glory, whose name was Tamar. He named her after his sister. She was a woman of a fair countenance. Now, get this. Get what the narrator's doing. He's making it seem as though Absalom is a good candidate for leniency. He has good looks. He has nice hair. He has flourishing family. It's as though he's saying, here's Mr. Israel. But the darling of the media, the, the, the choice of photographers. He has an amazing head of hair. He has children who will continue his dynasty. Sign him up. Let him back in the kingdom. He's going to be an excellent king. Give him mercy. He's a perfect candidate for it. But did you notice the narrator only uses terms that describe his outward appearance? He didn't say anything about his heart. Didn't say anything about his character. Does this not give us flashbacks to when the people of Israel wanted a king? Give us a king. Who was it? Saul. Why do they want Saul? Because he was dark, tall, and handsome. They never, they never said, give us Saul because he's a good, good man. Give us Saul because he's got great character. No, give us Saul because he can lead us to battle. He's strong and he's mighty and he's brave and he would prove to be everything but that. But when God picked a king, what did he say? Man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. Well, in the remainder of the chapter, here's what we're going to see. In this two-year span, the real character of Absalom starts to come out. And and we're going to see not much has changed since he left three years ago. Or by this time, maybe five years ago. Look at verse 28. I hope you're studying with me. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. Therefore, he got impatient. Absalom sent for Joab to have sent him to the king, but he would not come to him. And when he sent again the second time, he would not come. Therefore, he said unto his servant, see, Joab's field is near mine and he hath barley there. Go and set it on fire. And Absalom's servant set the field on fire. Not much has changed. He was impatient. He was impulsive. This sounds exactly like what he did whenever David wouldn't deal with Amnon. Remember? He got so frustrated and bitter towards his dad because his dad wouldn't punish Amnon that he took matters into his own hands. Well, his servant couldn't get Joab to get him back into the king's good graces. And so here's what Absalom did. He said, I'll just take it into my own hands. I'll set a match to his field. He hadn't changed. He's not repentant. It's further proved in his attitude in verse 31 and 32. Then Joab arose and came to Absalom into his house and said unto him, wherefore have thy servant set my field on fire? And Absalom answered Joab, he's so nonchalant. Behold, I send unto thee saying, come hither that I may send thee to the king to say, wherefore am I come from Gesher? It had been good for me not for me to have been there still. I should have just stayed. In other words, he's pointing the finger back at Joab, do your job. And then look at what he says next. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. And if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. Absalom isn't claiming to be innocent. Absalom has a sense of entitlement. 
Ashlam never once said, I'm sorry. Absalom didn't say, let me see the king so that I can apologize to him. Absalom just said this, my dad's not going to do anything. I've seen this before. He didn't do anything with Ammon. He's not going to do anything with me. I don't deserve retribution. Let's just get on with this. And watch what David did in verse 33. One of the biggest mistakes he ever made. So Joab came to the king and told him. And when he called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself on his face to the ground before the king. And watch this. And the king kissed Absalom. A sign of approval. A sign of acceptance. No judgment, no justice, no retribution. Now, you know what this makes me think of? He kissed him. This makes me think of when the father of the prodigal son kissed his cheek. Remember that? He had been living like a crazy man. And he came back to the house. And, And what did the prodigal's father do? He kissed him on the cheek. What's the difference? The difference is in the two sons' attitude. The prodigal son, when he arrived back, he had a speech repaired, prepared. And, and, and he told his dad this, I have sinned. And I am no longer worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. His dad noticed repentance. And he gave him mercy. There was no repentance from, from, from Absalom. No speech. No apology. No saying, I have sinned, Dad. I don't even have to be called your son anymore. Just make me a hired servant. Forgive me. Please forgive me. None of that. But David gave him a kiss when he should have gave him a rebuke. He showed him favor when he should have showed him as a good king of Israel. He should have showed him justice. David was a king. He was entrusted by God to preserve justice, even if at times that conflicted with him as a father. But when it came time for him to do his job, he looked the other way. Well, what what, what happened? Well, it invited further calamity. We'll study it next week. But you know what Absalom did? Just a chapter later, Absalom began to lead a revolt against his dad. Absalom ran his dad out of Jerusalem and caused David way more stress than what should have been caused. Because providing leniency to the unrepentant perverts justice and invites further calamity. Do you see that? Do you see that? Why are these things in the Bible? Well, the New Testament tells us these are in the Bible These Old Testament stories, for our example. Where they do good, we can repeat what they did. Where they did bad, well, we can learn what not to do. This is one of those things where we learn what not to do. So here's the question for us tonight. How do we see this same tendency in ourselves? To provide leniency to the unrepentant. How do we pervert justice and as a result invite further calamity into our lives? Well, I had to think of this first because I know there are two personalities in this room tonight. There's one personality that would lean towards showing too much justice. 
all the high unjustice people, you love this message tonight. Get them. Get them. Nobody deserves mercy. I love it. Yeah, preacher, let's go. But there's another personality in here too. And you lean toward maybe showing too much mercy. You're naturally very empathetic. You love the word grace. By the way, every Christian should love that word. You love the word mercy. You love the story of the prodigal son coming home and his dad not slapping him on the face but giving him a cheek, a a cheek, a kiss on the cheek. Not telling him to get off the property but saying, come on man, I've I've got a big old steak dinner for you. Some of you love that. So how do we resolve this tension? From those that are really uncomfortable with this story and those that are like, yeah, go get them. Well, we look at God. Because God always balances justice and mercy perfectly. So before I, I, before I bring this message to your house, I want to teach you a little bit about how God deals with us. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 and 6. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. You know what that teaches us? God doesn't pervert justice. God doesn't turn the other way when his children are rebelling against his word. He chastens us. Do you remember Jonah? God told him to go to Nineveh and Jonah said no. We should understand that when when God says go and we say no, there's going to be some chastening. And that's what he did with Jonah. What did he start with? He started with a severe storm. He didn't start with the well. He didn't start with the big fish. He started with the storm. He wanted to rattle Jonah. He wanted to get Jonah's attention. But Jonah just was unrepentant. So God had to cause a big fish to swallow Jonah. Took three days, but eventually Jonah was repentant. God gave the well a stomach flu. And he vomited up Jonah. And then we read in, in, in the, the middle part of the book of Jonah, and God came to Jonah the second time. God is a God of second chances. God does give mercy. God's, God does give leniency, but not until there's repentance. He gives a storm or he gives a big old fish when there's unrepentance. One way that God does this in our lives is that the Bible says in Psalm 66, 18, that if we regard iniquity in our heart, if we persist in our sin, then God won't hear us. That makes sense, doesn't it? God's not going to pervert justice by, by giving us the joy of sweet fellowship with him during times in which we love our sin more than we love him. That'll only invite, invite more calamity into our life. Why would God answer our prayers positively when we're living in sin? Why would he do that? He knows if he does that, we're just going to continue to live in sin. He won't pervert justice. Yet, 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sin, he's faithful and watch this, just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Meaning this, it would, ju- just, it would be just as much of a perversion of God's justice to withhold mercy when we're truly repentant. 
Do you see how God strikes the perfect balance? He delights in giving mercy, but, but he won't pervert justice by showing leniency to the unrepentant. He'll chasten us in hopes of getting us to repent and restoring us to sweet fellowship with him again. And if we do repent, he'll most naturally say, I forgive you. But he won't do that if we don't learn how to confess and forsake our sin. Why? He's just. He's holy. He's righteous. This is what David failed to do. Failed to balance this. He was too passive. Some people would say too nice. So how, how are we lenient to the unrepentant? Let's, let's take this to our lives tonight. Well, I think this shows up in the church if we're not careful. Listen very closely. If you're a guest, I, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm about to say or what I'm about to teach our church. So, so give me a second chance and come back and hear me preach. I, I want you to understand this. this is the teaching of God's word. This is for our church tonight. The church is supposed to be accepting of the sinner. Okay, I, need a, I need some more amens on it, some more agreement. We're supposed to be accepting of the sinner. But we are not supposed to be accepting of the sin. Now, I, I, I sense the two personalities in there. When I said accepting of sinners, yeah, grace, love. Put a fish on your bumper and say you love Jesus and honk if you do, you love it. Some of you were like, no. But when I said not accepting the sin, that's right, preacher. I'm not going to accept the sin. You know what I mean? We got this conflict going on. Well, we're supposed to do both. Accept a sinner, but not accept sin. When a believer in our church is living in sin. Now we all sin, but I'm talking about living in it. Persisting in sin, not repenting of sin. The Bible teaches the church in at least two different passages of scripture how to deal with that sin through loving discipline. Did you know that? Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. Now hear me, church. We don't get to make up the rules. Okay? When things feel uncomfortable, we don't just get to make up our own scripture. When God writes something to us, teaches the church, we call it ecclesiology, when he teaches us how to do church, specifically as he does in Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5, we don't get to write new rules because it makes us uneasy. So what does he, what does he say? What is this idea? Well, when somebody persists in sin, Jesus teaches in Matthew 18 that you lovingly confront that person privately. That's so key. I think church discipline, that phrase gets all mixed up because churches have skipped steps. All people can think of is you, you march this, this sinner in front of the church, you embarrass them, then you kick them out of the church if they're not sorry. That's, that's immediately where people's mind goes. And so they think that's so unloving. And I would say, if you go right there, that's incredibly unloving. That is not God's plan. If you see a brother or sister that you go to church with persisting in sin, I'm not talking about having a bad week or two. I'm talking about living a season of life in sin and they're totally not sorry for it. Then you go to them one-on-one. We're not, we should not be lenient. We should be loving. 
In fact, I would say the most cruel thing to do is let one of your brothers or sisters persist in sin and you not say a word. That's the cruelest thing you can do. Parents, if you let your kids just go all, go crazy, well, I just want them to know I love them. They just have all, no, build a fence. If you have a toddler, you just let them out in the front yard. Is that loving? That's the cruelest thing you can do. Right? Some of you in the terrible twos, you wanted to do that. But you know that's cruel. So, so when it comes to our brothers and sisters, other adults in the church that are not living according to the scripture and they're persisting in that, it's cruel to remain silent. Let them run around in the middle of the sinful street. Right? But we got, we got this obsession with privacy today. We got this obsession with don't judge me, only God is my judge. And we forget passages like Matthew 18. So on the authority of the word of God, I say this, we need each other. Not in a pharisaical kind of way where we look down our long nose because we're better. If that's your spirit, you are not the one to do any type of confrontation. Ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness. Right? Okay, so Jesus says, have a one-on-one meeting, Matthew 18. In fact, I need you to turn there because I don't want you to think I'm making this up. Some of you are thinking this is a Baptist thing. This is a Jesus thing. It's a Bible thing. It's not a single Baptist church in the Bible. Did you know that? But yet this is in the Bible. So this is not unique to Baptist. This is unique to the Bible. Matthew 18. All right, here we go. Verse 15. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, he's persisting in sin. What do you do? Go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. Not on Facebook, friend. Between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. Watch here. Anytime we pursue this, here's the goal. Restoration. You want to gain your brother. You want to win your sister. You want to keep them from going any farther. You want them to know you love them. You're so in love with them that you, you're going to risk the friendship to even confront them. Okay, but what if that doesn't work? Verse 16, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more that in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. You may need to have somebody come in and mediate that conversation. Verse 17, what if he doesn't respond to that? If he shall neglect to hear them, Tell it unto the what? The church. Well, that, that's, where it gets, that's where it gets tough. Somebody's persisting in open, rebellious, unrepentant sin. And we have tried. And I'm not talking about like one conversation, by the way. I'm talking about we persist in, in, in restoring them as much as they're persisting in sin. We love them. We don't, I'm not just going to. I'm not going to treat these as like little steps to take. Like, like if Kelby's living in unrepentant sin, I'm not, I'm not going to drive out there and meet with Kelby for two minutes and say, dude, I've been noticing this in your life and you got to take care of this. Well, I'm not in there. I said, okay, check off that box. I'm getting two or three more people. I'm going back to his house. Hey man, I brought some brothers in here. I'm going to talk to you about that sin. I'm not in there. I said, okay, check off that box. Go into the church. <laughs> That's not how this works. Are you with me? That's why church discipline gets a bad reputation. We're talking about loving, patient 
confrontation over and over and over and over. We persist in chasing them down like God persists in chasing us down. We don't instantly put them in the belly of a well. We try to shake them through biblical truth. Get their attention. Okay, but what if this doesn't work? Well, well then we, we got to go to the church. Well, why does Jesus say this? Why go to the church? That's a lot of people that are going to know somebody else's business. Because the church is his bride. The church is salt and light. And if sin takes over a church, if we're silent towards sin in the church, then we cease to make a difference in the world we're called to reach. Okay, what if we bring them in front of the church and they still aren't repentant? What are we supposed to do? Well, man, this, this gets tough. Look at the next, next one. Verse 17. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. I'm not going to take you there. We go to 1 Corinthians 5. But 1 Corinthians 5 says that we, we take them off the membership role. Why? Why? Because they are showing no fruit of repentance. They are showing no fruit of salvation. And the Bible teaches us that the only people that qualify to be the first qualification for church membership is salvation. And if a church can no longer affirm that somebody's a Christian, based on, I'm talking, I'm talking months and maybe years, of, of, of mentoring and discipleship and conversations and prayer. If after that long period of time, the church must dismiss that person from the membership role because they're no longer a saved person. Not that they lost it. They just never were saved because there was never genuine fruits of repentance. So then what is the church's posture after we do that? Well, we just stay on the path of reconciliation. We keep our doors wide open. And we say, man, if you ever want to talk about this, I so badly want to show you how you can be a Christian. How you can repent of your sin. The church never turns their back on a sinner, ever. But we still have to have a balance. And God gave us a system. Did he not? Give us a system that, that could teach us how to not show too much leniency. If we showed leniency towards sin that was out of balance, guess what that does to our church? It invites further calamity. Come on, some of you have toxic work environments and you wish your boss would have fired that person a long time ago. That's what sin does to a church over time. It's toxic. It rids us of our difference to the world. It it makes us just like everyone else. It turns what is supposed to be holy and sacred into a social club. This is one of the most scariest thoughts that I have as a pastor. That I would ever have to do something like this. It, It just, I'm telling you, it makes me so fearful. But I'm just as fearful of accepting sin. And being too lenient on sin. To where the church that God has called me to oversee becomes nothing short of a glorified social club. God help us. 
Can I give you another mode of application? It doesn't just show up in our church. It shows up in our homes. Let me talk to your parents for a second. I'm one of you. I have found that, that, that I struggle as a parent with finding this balance uh, with my son being too hard on him or being too soft on him. Like, which one's the right response, God? Do I make a big deal about this or do I not make a big deal about this? I'm trying to find that balance. I don't want to be too lenient, but I don't want to be too hard. That's where this passage helps us. Because as parents, we should never show leniency to our children if they're unrepentant. That produces adults that are really, really rotten adults. We should, like God does with us, chasten them. Discipline them in hopes that they will see and recognize and repent of their sin. If we let them get away with sin when they're young, they will never understand that they've sinned against a holy God and need a savior. If we don't make a big deal about sin, then they will not even know they need saved from it. Yet we see this leniency beyond control at Walmart all the time. The world's longest countdown. The longest three seconds there ever was. Johnny, I'm going to count to three. One. Johnny. It's already been three, but Johnny. Two. Johnny, don't make me say three. You know what happens when I say three. Three. Johnny's still doing something crazy. Three and one fourth. That's leniency. Watch this. I don't want you to just laugh this off. When we're too lenient, we're actually training our kids to disobey. We're telling them it's okay to disobey or to, dis, to, to delay obedience for a certain amount of time. You have three really long seconds to get your act together. The danger of that, watch here, the danger of that as parents is that we're inviting further calamity into our children's lives. Because if a kid can't learn to obey right away the first time when they're, when they're two years old, what will that look like when they're 13? If a teenager can't learn to obey, even when they don't feel like it and they disagree with mom and dad at 13, what will that look like when they're 18? Rebellion doesn't shrink, it grows. This is why many kids get into teen years and have terrible behavior, get to college years and go crazy because of what they were allowed to get away with in their toddler years. Too much leniency when they were young created further calamity when they got old. Hmm. Parents, we need God's help. We need God's help because we get tired. We get worn down. And if we're not careful, just like David, we get really lenient. And I know at Walmart, it's not the same as letting a murderer back into your house. But we might be raising one. 
perhaps the strongest, the most important warning from this text, and I'm done, would be to the person in the congregation tonight that is without Christ. Please, would you give me your attention? God tells us that what we deserve because of our sin against him is an eternity in hell. A real place called the lake of fire that's been prepared for the devil and all of those who willfully reject Jesus Christ. Well, I don't like hell. Well, hell for the unforgiven sinner is justice. God is righteous. God is holy. God is perfectly just. He will not allow an unrepentant unbeliever to go to heaven. He will not pervert justice. But here's what you need to know about God. He's also very loving. He's very merciful. He's very gracious. And he has made a way through Jesus for you to be forgiven and to be saved from hell. He sent his only begotten son to die on a cross that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. If you will, like like Jonah did in the belly of a well, acknowledge your sin, agree with God about your sin, be willing to repent of your sin, turn from your sin, not live a perfect life, nobody can, but be willing to think of sin like God thinks of sin. If you'll do that and place your faith in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sin, hear me, God will be lenient to you. He will provide leniency. He will give mercy. He will save you. But he won't pervert justice by being lenient when you're unrepentant. He will not save those who refuse to come to him in humility and brokenness over their sin. He won't do what David did with Absalom. He won't give us a a kiss on the cheek and turn the other way to our sin. You will only get God's approval when you repent and accept the free gift of his son. Because it's through his son and his son alone that we are made righteous. So, I want to invite anybody under the sound of my voice tonight. Who right now, you are under God's wrath. Is justice. You have not been made right with the Father through Jesus. You're trusting in other things. Even yourself. Or some experience you had as a baby or as a child. If you have not trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone. If you have not repented of your sin and come to the foot of the cross. And said I cannot get myself to heaven. I need a savior. If you've not begun that journey of repenting and believing, listen, God will not make you an exception. You will not get away with it. If you die tonight without Christ, you will not go to heaven. And nobody will be able to pray enough prayers to get you out of hell. I don't, I really wish I didn't have to preach a message like this. I real, but there's sin. I have to. There's sin. You have to confront these things. So mom and dad, I, I would invite you to just come and pray together and say, God, give us wisdom, man. We, we don't want to be too lenient. We, we obviously don't want to be too hard, but God, help us to not fall in this, this trap that David did where we kind of give our kids a kiss on the cheek and just turn the other way. Help us not to pervert justice. And God... Give us wisdom as a church. 
Help us not to tolerate sin. Help us to lovingly confront it and then lovingly confront it again and lovingly confront it again and lovingly confront it again. And if you know somebody living in sin, come pray for them tonight. Come ask God to bring them back and use you to speak into their life. If you agree with the Bible tonight, would you say amen? amen. All right, let's respond to the preached word. Would you stand to your feet?